We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Year. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Mr. Willie McGinnis of the NFL Network talking up our boy Ed Oliver. Hope you all enjoyed your 4th of July, folks, and you're coming back to us this week with the same number of fingers and eyes as you had the last time we did one of these. Yeah, hopefully no none of you JPP'd yourself. <laughs> Oh, guys, we have a just a it's it's almost training camp time, folks. And we have a show that's just chock full of stuff here for you tonight. But first, I got some things to get out of the way. First and foremost, it's time to start submitting your bids to join the 2019 Rockpile Report Fantasy Football League. This is going to be our third annual competition. And so far, Chris, I got to say, I'm pretty disappointed. It's because you're not good at fantasy football. Listen, it's not about where I've finished every year. And it's not about the fact that the guys that we invite to play with us on a pretty much annual basis aren't fun to talk shit with. And not because I don't like fantasy football. I love it. And it's it's a good way for us to get to interact with people that we might not always do so with who listen to the show. Now, what's grinding my gears, Chris, what's chapping my ass is the fact that not once, but twice now... A Brit has won the title. That's right. An American sport being dominated by someone who refers to French fries as chips and as we speak is probably drinking a room temperature beer. He's had his greasy mitts all over our title, Chris, and I can't stand it. I'm fine with it. As long as you don't win. (laughs) Folks, I implore you to help me take back our national pride and bring the Rockpile Report fantasy football title back to the good old U.S. of A. Email us at rockpilereport716 at gmail.com so we can you know, formalize the rosters as far as who's in, who's out, and send out the draft invites. And to you, Mr. Alex Wormall from across the pond, I'd rant at you, but I'm going to let Charlie Day do it for me instead. You know what? Let me kick down a little thing to you that our founding fathers kicked down to me. It goes, don't. Tread on me, and right now you guys are treading all over me! Okay, I'm gonna rise up, gonna kick a little ass, gonna kick some ass in the USA, gonna climb a mountain, gonna sow a flag, gonna fly on an eagle, I'm gonna kick some butt, I'm gonna drive a big truck, I'm gonna ruin this world, I'm gonna kick some ass, I'm gonna rise up, I'm gonna kick a little ass, rock flag and eagle! Rock flag and eagle indeed, sir. I will see you in hell, or in our fantasy football league, which is gonna kick off in just a few short weeks. <laughs> yeah, 
and there's probably a lot of you out there in the international community shaking your heads right now. To all of our listeners, we get it. We're typical boorish Americans sometimes. Ooh. A few weeks ago, I was complaining about the lack of viable sporting events taking going on. Chris, it's like the desert with the NFL not there's nothing. There's it's not- the desert right now. Baseball is on the all-star break. The home run derby is on my television right now in the other room. Yeah, well, you know who I heard about that from? Those statements that I made? The international fan base. I got an earful. Between d- DMs and Twitter and Facebook messages and emails. D- <laughs> I mean, Chris, everybody. Even uh, Terry White. I mean, he, 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 how many times did he message us about our stance on no sports around the world? I mean, I will say, I think part of the problem is he did just turn 67. And he's British, which officially qualifies him for the status of a quote-unquote curmudgeon. That's, he fits that category now. Apparently, there's a whole slew of sports that Chris and I are just are too uncultured to appreciate. Women's World Cup soccer. Golf. Hold on there, homo. I watched the final round front to back of the Masters and the U.S. Open. You're an idiot. That I like worst. golf. That those are like the, the two. Worst. Those are the two golf tournaments I watch. That sounds like hell. That sounds like my own private hell. It's amazing, especially when you add alcohol to it. Well, you know what? But you know what? The thing that I got lobbed at me the most: cricket. From Australia to Britain to South America, I had to hear about cricket. People from three different continents, and the fact that India alone. And it's 1.3 billion cricket fans might make cricket the most popular sport in the world. I, I, in the words of Raphael from Ninja Turtles. Cricket. Cricket? Nobody understands cricket. You gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. Seriously, what the hell is cricket? I've tried to do some research based on things that varying groups of people have told me, and this is what I've got so far. It's like baseball, except on acid. Underscored by the fact that it's played in a 360-degree radius instead of a traditional 90-degree wedge like baseball. The ball gets thrown at the batter in the same way I imagine Chris would look trying to throw from an MLB pitcher's mound. (laughs) Hey, come on now. I played uh, baseball in high school. Yeah. I got athletic chops. Left bench. Left bench. Left out. That's where you played. There are 11 players on the field at one time. But instead of calling them shortstop or center or wide receiver, they have names like spinballers, yorkers, and there's something called a backward square leg that just, I just picture pirates for some reason. But doesn't that make sense? A backward square leg? Yeah, to someone as dumb as you are, <laughs> of course it does. And the term wicket gets thrown around a lot, which just makes me think of croquet. And there is nothing badass about croquet. Nothing. I, <laughs> One of the things that confuses me the most, Chris, batters just get to keep hitting the ball. But they don't have to run the bases? They don't have to do anything? There's no... Like running back and forth. Okay. But how is that any different from playing backyard wiffle ball with ghost runners? It's not. That's right. That's stun silence. You have nothing intelligent to say in the game's defense. I will say this. I tried to watch some on YouTube. And apparently some guy named Chris Gale, who was playing for a team called the Melbourne Renegades... Scored 50 points for his team in one single at-bat. Apparently that's good. Chris, 50 points. 
50 points from one guy. Chris, I left the Saints-Bills game. I left early two years ago because they were hanging a 40-burger on us going into halftime. How does anyone keep watching a game when one guy on the other team just hands your entire, hands your team its whole ass? Here it is. Here's your whole ass on a plate. Plus, I don't think there's a, a time limit for a, a cricket game. No! They can go on for <laughs> 10 hours. <sighs> In order to placate the outraged international community, Chris and I promised to sit down with a case of beer and try to watch at least one full cricket match. We'll tape it for posterity and throw it up on the YouTube channel. Obviously sped up a little bit with some editing for time. I don't think I'm going to end up any more enlightened for the experience, but at this point, Chris, it still has to be better than trying to watch Major League Baseball. (laughs) I'd rather watch baseball. Of course you would, because you're a fan of things that are terrible. Speaking of which, folks, you guys have gotten used to our beer reviews on this podcast. And I promise you when I'm done here, we will launch into some football conversation. But Chris has Pearl Harbored me with this. <sighs> Chris, WGRZ you- put a tweet out about it like a couple weeks ago. And I asked, I asked Wade over at Consumers on Union two weeks ago. Hey, you got the Jenny Cream lemon strawberry? And he's like, no, nope, we're getting them in next week. And then I got them last week, and surprisingly, a 12-pack, $9.99. I thought it was going to be free. Chris has just handed me a can of Genesee Brewing Company's Cream Ale flavored lemon strawberry. Now, first of all, before I even open this can, I've got a few fundamental problems with this. First of all, lemon and strawberry are two flavors that shouldn't be together anywhere, ever. Not even an ice cream or sorbet? No! Who eats sorbet? If you... <laughs> I feel like saying the word sorbet makes me less of a man, okay? Second of all, it's cream ale. So you took flavors that don't need to go together, and then you mix them with potentially one of the most grotesque beers ever put into a can. Doesn't smell that bad. (laughs) Doesn't smell that bad. That's what you're hanging this on? Well, I I mean, if you're going to do a taste test, you at least got to smell it first. I smell fruit. Yeah. It's like I had a beer, and then someone put fruit in it. Great. Oh, Chris, I'm sure this is going to be a totally, uh, just a wildly enlightening experience, Chris. So here, bottoms up. Let's get this over with. Cheers. Cream ale, down the hatchet. Wow. Did you just drink half the can? There's... (laughs) It... There's uh, small hints of lemon and strawberry. Small hints? I pick oh, up more. I'm going in for sip number two. I pick up more of the strawberry than I do the lemon. Okay. After about half a can, Genesee. Keep it in there. Do not regurgitate on that microphone. Chris, over the years, you have done a lot of terrible things, as far as I'm concerned, just as a person. Like, you and I have, like, we've fought before in the past. I think you've done some pretty some pretty awful shit. This might be the worst. You paid $9.99 for this? I feel like you should call the police because a larceny just took place. Well, I told the dude at Consumers, I was surprised that it wasn't free. They should be giving this stuff away. Folks, for me to explain to you what this cream ale, lemon, strawberry tastes like, imagine taking a beer. I mean, this beer is, I swear to God, Chris, (laughs) this is what people who don't drink craft beer 
think shandies are supposed to taste like? Take a beer, remove the barley, the hops. Yeah, take a, <laughs> and, take a beer. Add lemon. Then take away everything that makes beer good. And then squeeze a lemon. Uh, squeeze some lemon in there. And then, right at the top of the can, put some strawberry syrup on it. Chris, anybody who openly says that they enjoy this must also just give a ringing endorsement to things like diabetes and the runs. Loose stools are the uh, are the uh, are the flavor of the week for people who enjoy this beer. Apparently, yeah, this I, is terrible. Well, I mean, I don't I don't like it, but I don't hate it. I would. Uh, and unlike I could, most crap beers, it doesn't get better the more of it you drink. No, I could. I mean, if I was going to drink this. I would, you know, probably drink this alone and not tell anybody that I have this. I could say that same thing about so many other aspects of your life. Folks, if I was going to try to recreate this on my own, I would find, I would take some Jenny Cream Ale, which is a terrible, just awful concoction in and of itself. And then I would take it and I would find a homeless person's sleeping bag and I would fill it with strawberries and lemons and then i would run the beer through the sleeping bag and bring it out into a container and that's what you would be drinking here this is like it has the worst parts of beer with some shitty flavoring thrown on top chris i'm pretty sure that if i were to come over here with five cans five cans of this and one can full of urine and we played russian roulette we would have a hard time figuring out who lost well yeah if anybody wants 10 cans of Jenny Cream Ale Lemon I, Strawberry. God, I hate you. I, I need a shot of whiskey. To get All right. Get the uh, Southern Tier Rye. Grab the Southern Tier Rye. I do. I guess Drew, okay, out of, right, out of the, right out of the bottle. I would not recommend this to anybody except Nate Geary. That would probably be my only recommendation. Because gear, I should get you Kolsch next. You, you I'll get, get you nothing. And you're, you're for, for the next, foreseeable no. future. Your beer selection privileges have been revoked. This is it. No, next show I'm going to give you the ruby red Kolsch. Oh, I'm not doing any of that, folks. I just had to gargle with whiskey to get the taste of that out of my mouth. This is going to be a fun podcast, folks. <laughs> so now on to the football talk. The reason that we're all here now that I've saved you all from making the same mistake I just did. Oh, my God. 2019 training camp preview. With the Buffalo Bills training camps a little more than three weeks away, it's about time we sit down, considering that there's, Chris, there's no news. No. There's nothing happening. N- nothing's really going on in the world of football, and especially not over at One Bills Drive. So this is our opportunity to take a seat, take a step back now that the roster's been constructed. Well, you don't want to go over that article on Pro Football Talk about uh, this isn't going to be Frank Gore's last season? <laughs> no, and I also don't want to sit here like some <laughs> other publications out there and try to predict who the Bills candidates for the 2020 Pro Bowl are going to be. Whoever, you should be shot in the feet. You should be shot in the feet for wild speculation like that. That's not journalism, that's hackery. But I digress. But isn't our defense, our defense is just last year's defense and Ed, Ed Oliver? Well, you'd think so. But let's dig into it a little bit further. I mean, guys, that's what this part of the season is for. As we ramp up to get back to weekly podcasts, you know, we're going to try to figure out what we've got on tap. And from that, as far as the roster goes, and from that, make some reasonable projections as to not only what the final 53-man roster might look like, 
but also what it means to the team's potential for the upcoming season. So we're going to kick things off with a review of the defensive side of the football. Now, from 2018, I've got some rankings and stats that I think, I think encapsulate everything that went on pretty well. Okay? We were second in total yards allowed per game. Chris, that's pretty good, right? That's a pretty solid statistic. But we were just 16th in rushing yards allowed per game at almost 115. We were 8th in the NFL in takeaways, but 26th in sacks. 15th in the NFL in fourth quarter points allowed at 6.4 a game. 9th in opponent third down conversion percentage. Now that's an important statistic, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Okay. 30th in opponent red zone scoring percentage. Opponents scored a touch scored on us 70% of the time that they had the ball in the red zone. Probably doesn't bode well, right? It probably doesn't mean you won a whole lot of football games. Nope. The Bears game, Ravens. The Chiefs. Those were, were gems. The Chiefs were the. I think it's worth noting. The Chiefs were the only team to finish in the bottom five of red zone scoring percentage to make the playoffs. And that's because their offense could outscore everybody. I mean, that's, that's literally the only thing that saved them. And then there were some trends that I saw you know, over the course of the season that I think are worth looking at. Six games last season with more than 20 points, with fewer than 20 points allowed. And we were 5-1 and one in those games. Even with as terrible as our offense was, we had four games where we allowed 30 or more points. And we were 0-4 in every single one of those contests. Kind of underscoring, again, our defense, if they, could, if they couldn't keep games close for us last year, there was no contest. It just wasn't. We were, our first four game, our first five games of last season, the score differential, we were negative 55. Think about those early blowouts. Um, I'm blinded by the Seagrams I had to drink in the Viking games at halftime. <laughs> and the last five games, the score differential was plus six. It's obviously the mark of a unit that's you know, trending in the right direction, just as a team across the board. When you want to talk about the 2018 Buffalo Bills on defense, I mean, they were something. <laughs> well, there were some things that went right. Our coverage units proved that they were, it wasn't a flash in the pan from the, from the previous season. They remained top-notch. And we had some young defensive backs really kind of emerge as legitimate NFL talents. And turnovers remained really strong. And tw- I mean, that's usually one of those statistics, Chris, that's static from one year to the next. You know, you can't predict turnovers from one year to the next plus it helps if you get a create a turnover inside the 50 yeah exactly in 2017 we had seven games with two or more turnovers forced and 25 total turnovers and we had a six and one record in those games in 2018 we had nine games with two or more turnovers forced 27 of them in total but we finished with a five and four record their offense couldn't move the goddamn ball simple as that what went wrong? And that's where you look at it and you say, okay, how did things not do better? We had six games where our defense allowed more than 350 yards and we lost all of them. And that's a lot of yardage, Chris. More than 350, I feel like that's maybe not in the modern NFL if you're talking about playing teams like the Chiefs and the Rams and these crazy spread option offenses that are just running up the score on people. But still, that's a, that, that's a lot of yardage and it's telling that we lost every single one of those games. And coverage in the short areas of the field was a massive problem all year long. 
Then on one hand, he had dominant stretches of play like the Vikings and the Titans games where the defense was the star of the show. We watched first-year players like Teron Johnson, Levi Wallace, and Trey Edmonds just as the season went on establish themselves as real talents at this, at this level. And we watched Matt Milano and Trey White grow into those roles in their second year as legitimate starters in the NFL. Especially flashes of elite talent from both of them. Yeah, I, I, Trey White, it's not flashes. He's been a stud, and I, you know, he proved that his first year wasn't just a fluke. Yeah, he's he's played extremely well for us, and he has not. I mean, I guess the Sims of the Cincinnati game was that his rookie year where he got torched by AJ Green. Yes, that I believe so. Really yeah. seems to be his only real bad game that he's had. Other than that, he's been a solid corner for us. But on the other hand, even with all those things that went right, we we can't sit here, Chris. It would be disingenuous for us to sit here and pretend that we didn't have teams hanging dong all over us for the first month and a half of the season. I mean, I get it. The offense was shit. And we were the worst passing offense in the NFL until we hit, like, week 10. I think when, uh, I think it was after the Jacksonville game, we kind of figured out something that looked like an NFL caliber passing attack. But everything else, we were on pace to be one of the worst in history. But some, I mean, you can blame, like, the Bears game. You can blame that on the offense, turning the ball over five times and just hanging our defense out to dry. But honestly, you can let we can't pretend that there weren't games where our defense just got out executed by the opposing offense. Think back get the first two weeks of the season. Let's not pretend the Baltimore game didn't happen. The worst loss to open a season in team history. I don't recall a whole hell of a lot outside of the, the shot that we bought for Poncho and the Dallas Fort Worth Bills backers. Yeah, here, oh yeah, here's money. Buy a shot when we get in the end zone. <laughs> Yeah, that ended poorly. And remember that, uh, and then the following week against the Chargers, they dinked and dunked all over us. And we talked about it on this podcast about how during those first two weeks, teams were throwing the ball at will on us, and yet neither Flacco or Rivers completed a pass. I think there was three passes completed of more than 10 yards downfield. Everything else was in front of us, just begging our players to make plays in space, and nobody could do it. Yeah, that was a that was a learning game there for uh, Edmonds, that I mean, linebacker. Think about the Colts game where they just used their running backs out in space to carve us up. We had uh, T.Y. Hilton catching passes in front of Matt Milano. That should never happen. I remember nothing of that Colts game except Allie trying to stream it. <laughs> All I know is this: it was a roller coaster. Okay, 2018 Buffalo Bills defense was a roller coaster. So it's fair to say that, well, the Bills have made a lot of changes on offense, and it's hard to speculate exactly what's going to happen on that side of the ball. It's the defense rounding into form and finding some kind of consistency that's going to dictate a lot of the team's fortune next season. So with that, I want to take a look at this half of the 90-man roster and see exactly where that change might be coming from and outline some of the interesting things that we're going to be looking for when camp kicks off in a few weeks. And I, I want to start things off with the safety position. Okay. You got Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, both in their seventh seasons. Free safety, Raphael Bush in his ninth year. You've got uh, Jaquan Johnson, rookie drafted this year. You've got strong safety, Saran Neal, entering his second year. Free safety, Dean Marlowe, who's a guy who I think has been in camp with the Bills last season, too. I think he was here. 
Sounds familiar. Which is going to become a theme as we go through this. You're going to see that there's a lot of familiar names on the depth chart as we go through this. And then the recently signed Mo Alexander. Okay. He's also on the roster as a, as a strong safety. So the team, if you want to talk about breaking down the group as a whole, the team has arguably, which apparently I still have to say because major publications still will not label Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde as one of the league's top tandems at safety. I think they're two of the best in the league, Chris. Also helps that your uh, head coach is known for his work, his work with, with safeties. safeties and D-backs. I mean, they've got, you're talking about two guys who, play, who have chips on their shoulder, 14 years of combined NFL experience, and they're a strong back end of the defense because they can play, they can both play deep or in the box. They both have not just ball skills and hitting ability, but leadership on and off the field. This might be the one position, I'd argue, there is no competition for a starting job coming into camp. There isn't. As long as Micah Hyde and Jordan Poirier are healthy, there's no reason they shouldn't be one and two on the depth chart, right? That's correct. Okay. Beyond that is where the real conversation at this position starts. Because despite the presence of Raphael Bush on the roster, he was our third safety last year. And he came in when I, you know, when called upon, you know, in the middle of games, sometimes guys got dinged up. Do you remember where, I think it was, was it Jordan Poyer? Or no, it was Micah Hyde. Micah Hyde, something happened. They were, I think they thought he might have had a concussion or something happened. Yep. And he came out of the game. It was Bush that who got his number called to go in and play in his place. With him there, there's interesting young players on the roster that are hope, hopefully going to make a push for inclusion on the roster. The first name on the list is Mo Alexander. He's a younger version of Bush in the sense that he spent a lot of his career as a standout on special teams and a spot starter when required. But I like him because he would not only seem to fill that role as that third safety that Bush currently holds while being a younger player and a more physical presence on special teams, but he has the upside that when he was asked to play a significant number of snaps just a few years ago, back in 2016 with the Rams, he started, okay, so he started 14 games for them, Chris. He put up pretty good numbers. He had 50 tackles, four passes defended, two interceptions, and no touchdowns allowed in coverage. Pro Football Focus the following year, in 2017, had him labeled as the Rams' quote-unquote secret superstar heading into the next season. I, so you, you can see where I'm going with this, Chris. You've got a guy in Raphael Bush. Yes, he's a veteran player. He's been around for almost a decade. But he's never been anything special. You've got a guy like Mo Alexander, on the other hand, who's shown flashes of just starting ability, not to mention being a great special teams player. I think that's going to go a long way when it comes to how this roster gets constructed at that position. And for the second year in a row, the Bills used a late-round pick on a safety, illustrating the importance that I think they put on that position in the draft. Think about how, Chris, they drafted Saran Neal and he barely played. Now they drafted another safety. Who knows what his usage is going to look like, but the fact is they've gone out of their way year over year to continue to bring in fresh talent at that position and churn the back end of the roster in hopes of finding quality there. You don't do that unless you prioritize that position. Do you think they're grooming him to eventually replace Hyde and Poyter if they get out of their price range? Well, I don't even know about out of your price range. I mean, think about it. They're both seven-year NFL veterans. They're both in their late 20s. 
Now, that's not to say they're going to regress anytime soon, but there may come a point where you have to make a decision, either financial or just because, hey, listen, this guy got old enough. He's 31 years old now instead of 28. Well, at this point in the game, his speed is starting. Because think about it. Neither Hyde or Poyer are exactly athletic freaks. They're just very disciplined, athletic guys who go out there and do a great job working together. If at any point they start to slip, you want to know, given how important that position is, that you have quality behind them that you can turn to. I think that's why you see Saran Neal getting more attention. I mean, let's just look at this. So far, Saran Neal, he only played 15 snaps on defense. And in those 15 snaps, had a forced fumble, a fumble recovery, and a sack. And he played 56% of the special team snaps last season. I think that given the investment and the time and the way that they're working him in, especially with word coming out of minicamp that he was being used sort of in that nickel defensive back role, I think there's a plan here to try to groom Saran Neal to eventually be something for this team. And I think the same goes for Jaquan Johnson. I think that they're looking at this as a high upside guy who should come in and be able to be a standout for you on special teams. And you can bring him along slowly because you have two guys like Poyd and Hyer for Poyd, Jesus, Hyde and Poyer for them to be groomed behind. You just look at what Johnson did in college. He was had great tackle numbers, 92 of them. Four interceptions, multiple tackles for a loss. That was the season before, I, I believe the season before he was drafted. His ceiling probably isn't that as a starter. I mean, I'm not gonna but I can't even really say that because Jordan Poyer was only a seventh-round pick. Teams passed on him, too. It's all about coaching and scheme fit. And So when I look at this, I just see a lot of talented depth there. And then this guy, Dean Marlowe. Dean Marlowe shows up, and I realize he was on the team last year. The the, uh, the practice squad? I don't know if he was practice squad or not. But here's what I do know. As we go through this, you're going to see this coaching staff loves the same... They keep bringing back the same guys as camp depth. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for him. Think about it. We, we, we brought you in last year and didn't put you on the roster. We're going to bring you back again this year after we already drafted another guy that we like and signed another free agent who's more accomplished than you are. I just feel like they get comfortable with players that they... Hey, we saw this guy once. We know he's not going to be an abomination, but we know he probably won't make the roster, which will make it easier for us to get other guys' snaps. Is there some logic there? Seems about right. So I think this, when you're just talking about the position as a whole, the safety group is probably the deepest in terms of potential talent that we've seen in a long time, which, can, which is good when you consider how important it is to McDermott's defense. We've got a solid mix of high-end starters, veteran depth, and some young guys that are there to be groomed for the future. And something else to be kept in mind. When we had Reed Ferguson on the podcast last, we discussed the interesting trend that the team has brought in more linebackers and safeties with special teams experience than they did last season. Meaning that the guys in the past who might not have found a place on the roster could find could have a shot at making it. And that's when you think about that though. Safeties and linebackers are probably the types of players you want making up your special teams unit, right? Seems about right. They're athletic. They're flu- you have to be a little bit more fluid by comparison. You know, I know Eddie Arbro was a player at defensive end who's played a lot of special teams for the Bills over the years. 
But as a defensive end, who do you think is more flexible in space? A 4-3 defensive end or a guy in a 4-3 linebacker who you kind of have to trust to have some coverage ability and some change of direction skill? And a safety who is a larger defensive back is going to have even more of that change of direction skill but still have more tackling ability than a cornerback or probably even a running back on special teams. Yeah, none of that made sense to me. <laughs> no, I know it didn't, Chris. But maybe this will make sense to you. The linebacker position. A lot like the safety position, linebacker is one that doesn't have a whole lot of questions at the top of the depth chart. We've got your, vet, your veteran statesman for the team now with the departure of Kyle Williams and Lorenzo Alexander. Your middle linebacker, Trey Edmonds, who we drafted in the first round last year. Matt Milano, weak side linebacker, who had a phenomenal year in 2018. And then you've got some names like Dion Lacey and Julian Stanford, NFL tenured guys who aren't probably what you would want in a starting caliber player. You've got linebacker Corey Thompson, and then some younger guys, Juwan Foggy, Terrell Dodson, and drafted in the fifth round, linebacker Vashawn Joseph. I think out of that group, you come in with three known starters already at the linebacker position. And when you look at their statistics in 2018, there are some interesting things that jump out that kind of help you nail down who those three players are. First of all, Tremaine Edmonds, 16th in the NFL for combined tackles. Matt Milano, 12th ranked linebacker in, in just overall grade by pro football focus. And Lorenzo Alexander, second on the roster with six and a half sacks last season. For a second? Second on the team. Jesus. Yeah. At 36 and a half, 37. Methuselah is out there throwing it down. <laughs> so when I look at this, I, I again, at the top of the depth chart, I really don't see a whole lot changing. Maybe here, I mean, Matt Milano is where it starts. Matt Milano is the playmaker of this, D, of this position group. He proved it last year that... You saw flashes of it in his first year, and in 2018, he really came on. I mean, he was looking to make a Pro Bowl bid right up until he got injured. And in all of our games, you could watch him from one game to the next. And even in that Colts game, where our defense got beat like a drum, you still saw snaps where he was dialed in. You know, you saw him, yes, he got beat by, you know, T.Y. Hilton, which is a terrible matchup for him in coverage. But then you'd watch him on reps later in the game, taking away the running back in space, knowing that the team was going to try to go to him again, and doing very well in coverage. So I think that I'm not worried about him. I know he's, he's going to lock down that job day one. Then you've got, you've got Trey Edmonds. Tremaine Edmonds was one of those guys who, he started the season, he was the youngest player in the NFL last year. And now he's set to launch into his second season. He might be, for me, one of the biggest X-factors of this entire season coming up for the defense. Everything that they said about him in his draft profile, we got to see firsthand last year. I mean, they hit the nail on the head with him. He was, he's an athletic freak who's got this rare combination of size and speed. I mean, he runs, what, 4'4", four, four, a 4'4", four, 40 at 6'5", six 6'6", foot six foot six, 250-something pounds. That's ungodly speed for a man that size. And that would allow him to just kind of be a force in all phases of the game so long as he could put it together between the years. And that's where he really struggled. But you saw him progress as the season went on. Early on, there were some, some lapses. To, if I'm being nice, I would say there were some lapses. Chargers game? Oh, the Chargers game, they beat him like a drum. 
like I said, passing the ball in front of him, confusing him with what he saw, getting guys in space and daring him to try to know where he was supposed to come up and make a play. It's just, it was, he had a rough couple games to start the season. But as time went on, he really started to improve and kind of come around to form in what you want in a true middle linebacker. So with, with those two guys, Chris, I think the reason they're so important, I was looking at some charts. According to Pro Football Outsiders, NFL teams collectively spent 60.5% of all defensive snaps playing nickel defense meaning you've just got the two linebackers on the field with an extra DB, whether it's a safety or a cornerback playing the slot. To know that we have two high upside young guys in the middle of our defense has to make you feel better, right? At a low price point. Exactly, which allowed us to go out and make a lot of the depth moves that, you're, that you've seen over the course of the offseason. And I think that it bodes well. I mean, I mean, I blame a lot of this, Chris. I mean, that's a, that sixty and a half percent is an eight percent increase from two thousand seventeen, where teams only played nickel fifty two percent of the time. Now, I blame that on teams like the Saints and the Rams and Kansas City and New England. You know, it, it's this proliferation of these exotic spread concepts and these spacing concepts when it comes to wide receivers. You have to be able to play good nickel defense, and I think with Trey Edmonds having a full year just being able to learn his role in the defense like this, not just acclimating to the program, but now having seen it, letting it slow down for him, and knowing where he's supposed to be in this defense, I think it's going to go a long way towards making our nickel defense that much better coming, coming up this season. And then you look at Lorenzo Alexander. He's going to continue to be what he was. When you use him as a situational pass rusher, he can be great. He proved that. And I think that he does an a pretty good job, I guess I, I would call it an average job, playing the ball in the running game near the line of scrimmage. Now he seems to, he's a veteran. He has, an, he has an understanding of how it's supposed to work. But I'll tell you, <laughs> there's a reason that the team went out and drafted Vashon Joseph in the middle rounds of the 2019 draft. He's exactly the type of player that you want behind starters like Lorenzo and uh, Milano and Edmonds. He's not going to be asked to take much on out of the gate. And he's billed as a laterally explosive athlete, probably projects to, in his first season, a player on special teams, and kind of as a backup weak side linebacker in this 4-3 defense. I don't know. I, I, he's small, so he's not going to be able to play a lot near the line of scrimmage because he's going to get swallowed up by blockers. But I think for a fifth-round pick, knowing that you've kind of nailed that down, I mean, Chris, you know what I don't want to see? I don't want to see another uh, another redo of the, the New England Patriots game where we had no choice but to keep putting Lorenzo Alexander out on the field and Bill Belichick just kept calling up jet sweeps with Cordell Patterson to whatever side of the defense that Lorenzo Alexander was on because he could not win in a foot race to get to the edge of the defense and was just getting beat like a drum for chunk yardage on the ground. Yeah, well, my thing with the linebacking core for this year is, is Edmonds going to have a sophomore slump, and is Milano going to be able to return to form from injury? No, those are two huge questions, and it's right to ask them. I mean, beyond those, those guys, Lacey, Stanford, and Crawford are all NFL veterans. They've each had a shot at uh, starting snaps in the NFL. I mean, <laughs> think about this, Chris. Remember how mad I used to get about Ramon Humber? 
Yes. Ramon Humber yes. stealing snaps from guys like Matt Milano and Gerald Hodges and all these other guys that I – young players with more upside. I don't even think Hodges made it to the 53. Uh, no. No, he did not. But those days are over. I mean, Crawford surprised me last year by taking uh, nickel snaps when I figured that they would go with any of the other more tenured linebackers. I think it's – ultimately what you've got is a group of guys with some experience to round out the back end of the roster. Now – as far as the position group as a whole goes, my outlook on it, when you look at the versatility and safeties in today's NFL, I think the team is likely going to be a lot less generous when it comes to reserving roster spots for backup linebackers. Now, you heard about the you just heard about the increase in nickel defense that's going to be played, and it's probably a trend that you're going to see continue this season. You don't see those spread offenses going anywhere. No, because what uh, what you take the you said you mentioned the Rams, the Chiefs. And just think the Bengals took the Rams quarterback's coach yep. as head coach. Yeah. Every, every, cause now everybody's trying to find the next Sean McVay. Well, and that's my point is these offensive concepts, whether they work or not, they're not going anywhere. It's only going to get worse. So with that, there's a devaluation happening with the linebacker position. Last season, the Bills only kept six linebackers on the roster. And I think that with three starters already penciled in, and having a safety like Mo Alexander with experience playing that kind of Mark Baron-esque safety linebacker hybrid role, and with legit NFL starting experience, it's entirely possible there isn't much of a competition here at all for those final few spots. I, I would be willing to bet that the devaluation actually takes the linebacker position in terms of how many you put on the roster takes a hit and maybe takes a backseat to the safety position. At defensive tackle. Defensive tackle, this one's easy, Chris. This is a slam dunk. This is as confident as I've felt about a depth chart and how I feel about it and what I think is going to happen heading into a season in years. First of all, you've got the uh, nose tackle, Starla Tule. You've got your three-technique defensive tackle in Ed Oliver, three-tech defensive tackle in Jordan Phillips, a one-tech in Harrison Phillips, and then you've got a bunch of guys behind them. Kyle Pecco, uh, defensive tackle Robert Thomas, who actually played with the team last year, and defensive tackle L.T. Walton. How many starters do I think I know already, Chris? I'm going to call it four, okay? Here's some notes on how they did statistically in 2018. The Bills are returning just one player to start all 16 games at defensive tackle for the team last year. Just one. That's some, that's some significant turnover there. And then... When you look at how they perform statistically, I know a lot of what defensive tackles do doesn't show up on the stat sheet, especially for a guy like Starla Tulele, whose game isn't about collecting tackles and sacks. It's more about freeing up the people around him to do that. But the Bills had the fewest interior defensive linemen in the AFC with sacks. Kyle Williams had five, and everybody else had zero, according to Pro Football Reference. Meanwhile, the Jets had two players on the interior of the defensive line that had seven apiece. That's how far behind we are, talent-wise, from an interior defensive line position. So when you take a look at what we've done to remake that group heading into the 2019 training camp, I don't know. There isn't a whole lot to say here. We're pretty much knowing who's going to be on the roster. Given that outside of one month in 2017, when injuries made it essential, the Bills have only carried four defensive tackles in the 53-man roster. Every year we've played a 4-3, going back a half a decade. 
Starla Tule is going to return as our de facto nose tackle. I mean, he's going to eat up space and hopefully work to keep our linebackers clean so that they can operate in the middle of the field. Harrison Phillips is going to be here as his understudy. And hopefully he's going to show some improvement in his skill set and consistency to a level where we don't notice a significant dip in performance from week one to you know, week 16. For those of you out there who might remember, Harrison Phillips, when he was drafted, his skill set, I mean, he was coming out of Stanford leading his team in tackles for a loss and in total tackles. But he was also playing on a defensive line with guys like Solomon Thomas, who was the number three overall pick in the draft, and a bunch of other really talented defensive linemen. His skill set isn't that of a natural pass rusher. He's a big body who's a strong guy. I mean, he set the record, not set the record, but he, he won the bench press competition at the Combine we went. He's clearly a massive human being with power, but he doesn't have the quickness and suddenness to his game that you need in order to be one of these uh, disruptive players on the defensive line. So they've been kind of grooming him in that Star Latulale space-eating role. And you saw him break down over the course of the season to the point where by week 10, I mean, Chris, I, I'm not going to say it, it was not. When I say he hit the rookie wall, we're not talking about a full-blown Paul Walker situation here. What we're talking about is he just fell off to the point where as games were coming up, you no longer you no longer saw or heard any mention of him from one play to the next to the next. Sometimes he'd disappear for entire quarters if you tried to watch the tape. I, I really do think he can get there. It's just based on what we saw from him early on. It's just seeing if he can take these next steps to prove that he's a legitimate understudy to star. Because if not, we're going to have a really hard time filling that, filling that you know, zero-technique role. On the other side, next to them, when you're talking about disruptive players, Jordan Phillips is clearly penciled in as our defensive tackle number one heading into camp. He's got experience, which is the Ramon Humber versus Matt Milano experience should illustrate for everybody. That trumps a lot of things in the mind of Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier. They love to defer to experience over athletic upside. They just do. Which, Chris, I guess, all things being equal, I can't really blame them. No, well, I mean, relating it to playing hockey, I would much rather play on a line with somebody that is might not be as talented, mm -hmm. but their, uh, their ability upstairs in the brain of the sport is way better. I would much rather have that. Not only that, but then you look at Jordan Phillips, and you have to think, they made a, a significant, I shouldn't say significant, but it is, a significant investment in Jordan Phillips. I mean, he, right now he's the 26th highest paid defensive tackle in the NFL. And it's only on a one-year prove-it deal. You wouldn't sign a player to that sort of deal unless you planned on giving him the ability to go out and prove it, right? Correct. It would be counterproductive. So... I really think that this he's going to get, come training camp, a, a lion's share of the early snaps just to see if he can capitalize on some of that upside that he showed last year. I mean, with Phillips, again, a lot like Harrison Phillips, they share this trait where they'll show brief flashes of just being a dominant player. They're disruptive. They're hand-fighting well. They're pushing the offensive line. They're getting penetration into the backfield. And then for an entire quarter, you don't even know that they're on the field. They need to, both of them need to find a way to round into that. And I think Phillips, Jordan Phillips is probably more, 
more likely to step into that role and at least be afforded the opportunity to take first crack at proving that he has that disruptive kind of talent. Now, then there's that Oliver, our prized possession of the 2019 draft. Willie McGinnis in our intro did a really great job outlining exactly what he brings to the table. He's what the team is hoping the future of our defensive tackle rotation is going to be. He has athleticism, that disruptive skill set. I mean, we haven't had, Chris, we haven't had a disruptive, <laughs> we have not had a disruptive talent at defensive tackle since 2014. Back before we cut a fat check to Marcel Darius and then watched him put on his captain's hat and sail off to Douchebag Island. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? Kyle Williams, the fact that Kyle Williams, at 35 years old, outproduced everybody else in our defensive tackle rotation last year. And now he's retired. He's not coming back. Somebody's going to have to step up here, which they needed an infusion of talent. Somebody was going to need to step up. Ed Oliver seems like the candidate to do that, right? Yeah, and everybody's frigging comparing him to Aaron Donald. Oh, Jesus Christ, don't do that. Don't do that to me. And then beyond those four players, the, the trio of Robert Thomas, LT Walton, and Kyle Pecco have an average age of 27 years old, but just have one career start between them and a total of 11 tackles in the NFL. Those sound like camp bodies. If you Googled the term cannon fodder, I, I would bet that somewhere, somewhere in the results, there's a group photo of these three guys laughing and eating sandwiches together. That's cannon fodder. That's they're here to make sure nothing... Somebody has to take the snaps, Chris. Somebody has to take the snaps. Yeah, we need people to play in that final preseason game. <laughs> so that's... Look at the, the outlook for this group. Despite having a pretty firm idea as to who's going to make the roster already, I think the thing that's worth noting with this group is their usage pattern as camp progresses. I have been very vocal about the fact that given Oliver's smaller stature by comparison to other... You know, three to, true number one, three tech defensive tackles in the league. And the obvious jump in opposing talent he's going to face. Chris, Oliver came from a non power five school. Houston. He was playing teams like Rice. <laughs> <laughs> How many dominant NFL offensive linemen have come from Rice? Not a lot. No. Nate, can you name one? No. Well, you have I, a hard time naming more than three offensive linemen on our team. So well, I, well, I would even question, does Rice have a football program? <laughs> I know they're good at baseball, but do they have a football program? I mean, just looking at the hill he's going to have to climb in order to, be, to reach his potential, he should be slowly worked in on the back end of the rotation in the early portion of his career. I'm a firm believer in that. I think it'll give him a chance to develop his skill set as well as changing his... I mean, think about it. He's also changing a role. He was a nose tackle. For as disruptive as he was, he was regarded as a nose tackle at Houston. That's how they used him, to make the people around him better. By using him now in the role where he's expected to be the finisher, he's going to be the playmaker, not just the, I'm going to eat up as many bodies as I can. There's going to be some, there's some transition there that's going to have to take place. And... The other thing is, he's got to get used to this idea. As a smaller defensive lineman, he's going to have to learn how to play the run and how to run block effectively against NFL-caliber offensive linemen. I mean, we joke around about Rice not having an NFL-caliber line, but it's the truth. Guys like Ed Oliver, 
We've seen it throughout the course of history that smaller defensive linemen, if they're mostly if you're relying on them for their explosiveness and their hand fighting and their first step, the easiest thing to counter that, if I'm an offensive coordinator, is I'm going to run the ball directly at you when you're on the field. Because my I know for a fact my center and guard can probably combo block you off your ass. <clears throat> so with that said, it's gonna it's gonna be on this team to groom him and teach him these things, rather than just if they really want him to reach his full potential. And so I'm I'm gonna be really interested when camp launches to see where they slot him in in the rotation, as far as if he's taking snaps with the second team or the third team, rather than consistent first team reps. Because I think doing so would be a detriment to his future. And then that's they're set up to do that because they have a guy like the Phillips. I'm calling them the Phillips brothers. <laughs> you're going to put the Phillips brothers on. You have them here so you're not obligated to rush Harrison uh, at Oliver into service. I just think that based on Sean McDermott's love of veterans and just the, the plan here as it would seem to fall for Ed Oliver makes too much sense not to platoon him in. You don't want to overwhelm you don't want to overwhelm him Absolutely with information. Not. No. I mean that's essentially what I'm doing here to you and our listeners. I'm just rambling at you. <laughs> but too damn bad. I'm Luke Picard and this is the uh, what is it, the Starship Enterprise? And you're all coming with me. I don't even know what Luke Picard is. Is that a person? Ah Defensive end. It's the next position on my checklist here. That position, eh, I'm not sold. Let me run this down for you, Chris. Defensive end Jerry Hughes at uh, left, I believe it's now considered left defensive end. Or no, right, because right defensive end goes up against left tackle. On the other side, you have Trent Murphy and Shaq Lawson, Eddie Yarbrough, Eli Harold, recently signed to a one-year contract, Mike Love, who was brought back last year after being on the practice squad. He's been re-signed again. And Daryl Johnson, our resident pterodactyl. Um, if you want to talk about starters or people who I think are going to be starters already on the roster, I'm going to call it at three. Here's, some, here's a statistic of note. Despite just three defensive ends recording sacks in 2018, Hughes, Lawson, and Murphy combined for 15 of the team's 36 sacks. That's almost half. Chris, Half of the team's sacks came from those three guys. Not good. Not good, Ace. Not, no. Not good. Woo. Chris, I got to tell you, I'm getting fired up over here. I think uh, gargling with whiskey, that's a thing we should do more often on this podcast. Mm. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, bring your own whiskey for that. <laughs> I'll get you another bottle, sir. When I take a look at the defensive end group, Things are here are a little more interesting than their counterparts in the middle of the line. Obviously, Jerry Hughes is the cat's ass when it comes to the group. Despite relatively low sack numbers in 2019, he was one of the tops in the entire NFL in generating position from the defensive end position. I know, he's older, and it's been over five years since he had a double-digit sack season. But he's consistent. He's not only solid against the run and at creating pressure pretty much by himself. But he's also extremely durable. Chris, when's the last time that you could say that a, that a guy playing for the Buffalo Bills played all but one game? All but one over a five-year span. Uh, my guess would be Phil Hansen. In five years, he's played 79 of a potential 80 games. 
that's durability that you just don't find anymore in the NFL. Once you get past Hughes on this depth chart, things get murky. That's why that's going to be our first-round pick next year. <laughs> I hope you're right. Because the players who make up the rest of the depth chart have a variety of skill sets. It's almost You almost think that you could take, if you could just take the best trait of each of them and stitch them together like Frankenstein's monster, you might have one complete NFL defense event. Unfortunately, we can't do that because it's illegal here in the continental United States. At least the last time I checked, Chris. You know, the whole grave robbing thing. It's frowned upon in this establishment. Maybe they do it in England. Get warm all on it. <laughs> oh. The number two defensive end position looks like it's going to be a, kind of a situational rotation based on down and distance. And you've got Shaq Lawson and last year's free agent signing Trent Murphy. I don't even want to call either one number one and number two because they're interchangeable as a second fiddle guy, but neither are really an every down player. In Lawson, you've got a guy who has no choice but to have. He was called the day one starter when he was drafted by GM Doug Whaley. But this regime opted not to pick up his fifth-year option, making this a free agency audition after four years where his health and production have both been wildly inconsistent. In his time here, I think he's proven that he's a really strong edge defender. He can take on blockers in the running game and pretty much hold his own. He's a big, strong guy with... I, I think his, he's got a lot of upper and lower body strength, which helps him set that edge. But he doesn't have the quick twitch ability that it takes to beat most right tackles in pass rushing. He just doesn't. And I don't think he's learned a whole lot of counter moves or spin moves over his time in the NFL, which to me is almost sort of inexcusable. This is your job. This is, you, you have to really focus on this. And if it turns out you just can't do it, then the team almost has no choice but to look elsewhere. I mean, think about it. That's the reason that Trent Murphy is here. He's made of glass. I mean, that's it. So there's no way in hell you'd commit almost $9 million in 2020 to a guy who can't crack five sacks in a single season. I mean, I'm not expecting a, a, a breakout year for Shaq Lawson. I mean, it would be nice. But heading into camp, I still see him as our, you know, a number two, 2B, we'll call him as far as an edge defender, not instead of a true starter. And Trent Murphy's just as hard to project. He had games like Houston and Minnesota where he was all over the place, creating havoc behind the line of scrimmage, forcing fumbles, swatting balls down at the line of scrimmage. But you take those and you sprinkle them over an entire season and you find out that it's a sea of mediocrity with a few gems thrown in there. He was a really, really solid situational pass rusher for the Redskins, which is why we signed him in free agency, because Shaq Lawson simply couldn't find the pass rush. Now, coming off an ACL tear, he was in and out of the lineup and admitted that he wasn't as close to 100% as he may have claimed to be. And when you combine that with a position change from outside linebacker in 3-4 to defensive end, I think a lot of that contributes to his four sacks and pretty much pedestrian grades against the run. He was never a great run defender, and if you're not healthy in the lower body, that's going to hurt you when it comes to taking on blockers. Heading into 2019, he's a lot like Lawson. It would be hard to claim that I see him having a breakout season, but I think that a lot of his production is just going to become, how does the team choose to utilize him? I mean, I think that if Lawson can do his job well enough on early downs, it'll allow the team to change Murphy's deployment to advantageous situations that 
can best fit his skill set? I don't know. I think that the two of them are, their, their fates are kind of tied to each other. One hand is going to wash the other. If Lawson does his job well on early downs, then Trent Murphy's going to be able to come in on pass rushing downs and do what he does best. If they both stink at their respective crafts and the things that they're good at, they're both going to have poor seasons. And I don't know that Shaq Lawson has the chops to really provide much more than he's already shown us as a pass rusher. You can only imagine what you'd be doing in the stands this season if that is the case, and they have horrible seasons. <laughs> I mean, Chris, I hate to say You're it. You're going to be letting everybody in 200 know the, your feelings on this. For the 2019 season, I see these two tied together like it's some, like some kind of three-legged race. Like, they are attached to the hip. And one hit, like the, one's play is going to impact how the other goes. And when you look past him on the roster, I don't see a whole lot else there to get excited about. I mean, Eli Harold is something of a mystery. He's previously played kind of this Lorenzo Alexander-esque linebacker, defensive end, hybrid role. You do have a Seagram's bet about him with Nate Geary. On what? I think it was Nate said he's going to get more snaps at... Defensive end, then I guess what a linebacker. If you say if you're saying he's going to play a Lorax role, yeah, that yeah, I think Nate. I have to look at the board, but well, I, this is why I'm smart. Nate Geary is dumb. Okay, when you look at Eli Harold, his physical makeup, he's small for a four-three defensive end. He's only 243 pounds, and he played a stand-up off-the-ball role when he played in Detroit and San Francisco. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can transition to a pass rush specialist in kind of a hand-in-the-dirt kind of way that... Or or if he does start to fill a Lorenzo Alexander role where you know you can put him out there as a strong side linebacker and have him come to the line of scrimmage in pass rushing opportunities. Yep, that's the bet. Nate Geary's got him at D-end and you got him at linebacker. I'll see Nate Geary in hell. This is what I know. I know for a fact that it's a bad idea to try to put a sub-250-pound defender against a 290-pound offensive tackle on a consistent basis. You can't do it. It's a terrible idea. Chris, that's a worse idea than this shitty mohawk of yours. This is a great idea. It's a worse idea than this Jenny Cream Ale that, you, that I still haven't finished. That stuff was terrible. I'll see you, that haircut, and the makers of this, and anybody who thinks Eli Harold should be playing with a hand in the dirt, I will see you all in hell. I just think that coming out of camp, Harold's going to have to do some work to prove he can blitz and prove he can provide pass rush because that's his ticket to making the 53. And past that, I don't even know how to how to try to handicap this race at defensive end. Eddie Yarbrough regressed last season. You know, in 2017, he had six starts at defensive end. Didn't record a sack, but had a lot of pressure. Last year, he played so poorly that he was benched down the stretch for Mike Love. Another practice squad guy who kind of has been groomed into a backup role. Both of them, they're effort guys. They epitomize this jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none aspect of athletes that just, they do something, they, they can do most things on an average to slightly below average level. There's no one thing that either one of these players does well. And then you've got Daryl Johnson. Pterodactyl. Our seventh-round draft pick. He's the epitome of what Brandon Bean seems to be looking for in players in terms of elite physical traits that cannot be taught. He's got a massive frame and an eight-foot wingspan. Now, that 
he's light in the body right now, but some time in an NFL training program would probably do him well to put some more mass on his frame. The thing with him is that when you have long arms like that, it goes a long way towards helping keep offensive tackles from even getting their hands on you in the first place, which then goes a long way to helping you kind of learn how to become a pass rusher. Because when you're getting bullied around the field, you can't really learn. And it's hard for guys, with, especially defensive ends, with short arms or who aren't exactly fluid athletes, it's hard for those guys to go on and find success in the NFL. Can we... Uh, can do you know about this? Do you know if you're gonna have any uh training camp media passes yet? Not yet. I'm still working on it. Okay. I've got some feelers out there. It's gonna be interesting. I just don't have time. And to be honest, Chris, well, I, I will say this: being at camp, it was a great experience. The handful of times I got to go, getting to be at New Era Field, behind the scenes, just as a season ticket holder who's usually just bombed somewhere in the concourse, like before the game. Being on the other side of the fence was scary. It was. I got lost multiple times. You don't know how many tunnels and different things are back there, and the stadium is much bigger than it seems. Like, when you think about what you see, there's a million other things going on. And then at training camp, it's interesting from the perspective that you get to see some of these players up close and personal. You get to talk to some of them. You get to pick their brains about more than just what you see on TV and what you read in somebody else's interview. But at the same time, you look at what the inherent value of that is. I'm, it, it certainly helped us produce some great content for our listeners. For me personally, I learned some things. And I think I learned more about the journalism industry and more about what goes on behind the scenes in that aspect than I did about what actually takes place on the field. But if you do get a pass for training camp, I do want you to seek out this pterodactyl and get a wingspan photo with him. You Both of you... <laughs> Like shoulder to shoulder, because because we're you and I are both around about five ten and a half five eleven, but then when we when you put your arm next to mine, my fingertips go to your wrist because you're. <laughs> I a, can touch my knees. Yeah, because you're standing a, up straight. Because you're a goddamn gorilla. I just want a photo of you, your wingspan versus Daryl Johnson's wingspan. Just you know. Ultimately, for reference, is all. that's all I want. We'll see what we can do for you. But ultimately, when you look at what this group is, and you just look at the skill sets and the... What you have is you don't have... This looks a lot like last year's defensive tackle group in the sense that you don't have a high-end talent anywhere across the, the group. What you have is this kind of hodgepodge of different skill sets that you're hopefully going to be able to weave together to make a productive unit out of. I'm not going to hold my breath and say that just because we brought in Ed Oliver, it's going to make our defensive ends the best in the NFL. It's not. I, I'm expecting some fairly pedestrian production out of them. And I think that the battle for those backup positions, because generally speaking, we keep four defensive ends on the roster year over year when we play in a 4-3. So with that, you already have three guys penciled in, Chris. So what is there, one job up for grabs? Pterodactyl, we'll get it. Well, considering he's got practice squad eligibility, and he's raw, he was a seventh-round pick, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. But it's going to be interesting to see which one of these guys steps up and earns that fourth spot. Because right now, I don't see another person on this depth chart at defensive end. You know, Eli Harold has the experience. Uh, Daryl Johnson has the, dra- the fact that he was drafted going for him. Eddie Yarbrough and Mike Love... They've got some familiarity with the coaching staff, and that's about it going in their favor. 
it's going to be a complete dice roll, in my opinion, as to who holds down that fourth position. But it's going to be interesting to watch uh, and see how everybody rounds into form together. And then you've got the last position on the defensive depth chart, and that's cornerback. And that's where things get kind of fun. That's because cornerback is probably our... I might say it might be deeper than safety or just as deep because you have because you found a gem in Levi Wallace undrafted. Oh, absolutely. And when you look at this, the cornerback group, headed up by Trey White, you've got Levi Wallace, uh, Kevin Johnson, Ryan Lewis, who last year I was pounding the table for, uh, Denzel Rice, Lafayette Pitts, Teron Johnson, EJ Gaines, and Cam Lewis. Okay. Known starters, I'm going to call it at two, Chris. There's two guys on this entire list of names that I'm going to say are known starters heading into this uh, training camp. And from 2018, here's some statistics that I find interesting. First of all, Teron Johnson. Pro Football Focus had him as the 16th best cornerback in the NFL through Week 9 before his shoulder injury flared up and knocked him up. He just had to go to the IR. EJ Gaines. He's interesting because while he wasn't here last season, when he was playing in this defense in 2017, his coverage grade, according to Pro Football Focus, was 80.6, which was 17th best in the NFL playing in the slot where Teron Johnson just came from. In 2018 with Cleveland, in a different defensive scheme, his coverage grade was a 62.5. That's a sizable regression. And then Trey White. Zero missed starts in his first two seasons. Last season, he played 94% of all defensive snaps and allowed just 30 catches for 357 yards. Remember once upon a time when there was a lot of just horseshit? I'm going to blame it on WGR 550 listeners about how Trey White's overrated. Do you remember that? Because I remember it. No, I, don't, I have not listened to GR in quite some time. In terms of our depth chart right now, this is Trey White's world, and the rest of these guys just kind of live in it. He's been a revelation for this defense in terms of consistency and overall ability. I mean, he does pretty much everything well. I haven't seen a hole in his game. You know, from one rep to the next, to the next, to the next, he's consistent. If he gets beat on a play, he comes back and makes a good play on the next rep. If, you show him, if a wide receiver shows him a, a double move or shows him something and gets one over on him, he comes back and shuts it down the next time he tries to pull it. He's a cerebral cornerback who just, I mean, his instincts are great. His, his on-the-field dancing, Chris, might be one of my favorite things. Trey White, uh, was it Trey White Goalie Academy? He's got that. <laughs> Trey White Goalie Academy. Goalie Academy, he's, he's dabbling, got that. He's trying to dabble in hockey, even though he doesn't remember any of the players' names. It's hysterical. And a lot, I mean, ultimately, Trey White is our number one, and there's no question about it. Which is nice, knowing who your number one cornerback is, and also knowing that he's a guy who's borderline, a borderline Pro Bowl caliber talent. Along that same line of thinking, we've got slot cornerback Teron Johnson. He was lights out despite playing with a separated shoulder for a lot of the season. Heading in healthy into camp, I expect him to improve on that if that's even possible. And I think that when you listen to the statistics of where Teron Johnson was, Last year, 16th in coverage. E.J. Gaines, when he was with the Bills, 17th in the NFL in coverage grade. I think that there's a very specific skill set that this coaching staff looks for to play that position. They found it in Teron Johnson. 
EJ Gaines, when he was here, filled that role when he was healthy. I just, I, I think that it's a good marriage of talent for Teron Johnson and his coaching staff, talent and coaching, just coaching ability and scheme. I think it's perfect. I think that this scheme helps slot cornerbacks be more effective than they might be in other, you know, in other defenses, which we saw happen to EJ Gaines before he didn't play at all last season. Beyond the two of them, though, everything, I, I'd call this wide open. It's a guessing game as to what's going to happen with the rest of this depth chart. Levi Wallace, that's the name on everybody's lips. You said it yourself. Yeah. He, he's a guy who went from the practice squad to closing out the 2018 season is statistically one of the best coverages, coverage cornerbacks in football. I like watching him play because he, he mirrors wide receivers really well. You know, he doesn't have deep speed, but... It, in the short areas of the field, he'll stay in your hip pocket. And when you have safety play like ours, you're never worried about getting torched because you know that you've got coverage over the top, which allowed, I think, allowed Wallace to do a lot of what he did, which plays to his skill set. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to run stride for stride with AJ Green down the sideline. Few people are. No, you always need safety help over the top with AJ Green. But even, even you know, other wide receivers, you, know, you saw him when we were playing Miami, Devontae Parker. There was, a, there was reps where he did very well again and again and again as they tried to work him in on you know, short in routes and even some deeper crosses. He found a great way to mirror and box out, and he hand fights well at the line of scrimmage, which helps. His jam is pretty good. So, you, I don't know. It, it's interesting that a lot of draft outlets had him pegged as, at, at worst, a special teams contributor, but probably nothing more than a career backup. And he came in and played his way to a starting role down the stretch. He thrived in this zone-based system. And his growth, if, just to see if he can carry it over from one season to the next, is going to be really interesting. Now, I was nervous that the team would kind of rest on its laurels with Wallace and just assume that they had found the answer to the number two DB position. And instead, they went out and picked up some, I think, savvy moves. They picked up some cheap veteran depth in order to push both second-year defensive backs and Kevin Johnson and EJ Gaines. Now, Gaines is an inside guy, He's whereas Johnson is more of a boundary cornerback. But they have some commonalities. They've got the same medical red flags. That's probably the biggest one. Neither has put together a full 16-game season in their entire career. But they've both shown stretches of solid play that teased a lot of different teams with the prospect of them being impact starters or at least players, guys who could come in and make a difference for him. If healthy, Johnson and Gaines represent solid backups at this point. You're talking about veterans that have familiarity with NFL caliber competition, but don't have a dire need to be pressed into duty. For each of them, I, mean, I think the idea that we they might see less wear and tear over the course of a 16-game season, that might be the key to them being kept around as contributors for this team in 2019. As well as the fact that as veterans, they can teach the guys both behind them and in front of them on the depth chart for a week-to-week basis. You know, once you've built up that veteran base of knowledge, you can teach the guys around you unless you're Joe Flacco, who's just kind of a dickhead. <laughs> I mean, Chris, remember? Huge when, dickhead. During the playoff game when the Ravens are just getting throttled by the, by the Chargers. And Joe Flacco is sitting in between RG3 and uh, what's his face? Their quarterback, Lamar Jackson. And he doesn't get... He just he, leans forward. Rather than trying to help the kid, 
out of his jam. Joe Flacco leans forward so that RG3 can have a conversation with him over his back. He doesn't even get up and move so that the two of them can whisper to each other. He stays planted firmly in between them while these guys try to have a conversation behind his back, physically, behind his back, about how to approach the next series. Yeah, and I don't want, I don't want that from Kevin Johnson or EJ Gaines in that cornerback room at I all. I don't think we have to worry about that because it's a special kind of douchebag. You look at the rest of the guys, and I got to tell you, I can't sit here and pretend to know a whole lot about them. You got Cam Lewis. He's a small corner from our local University of Buffalo, our D1 program over here. I'd say he's honestly a long shot to make a pro roster. He had three picks and a bunch of pass breakups against UB level of competition. But he also had a, he's got an injury history, and at five foot nine is small even by slot cornerback standards. You look at the other Lewis on the depth chart, he's a guy that is not only familiar with the coaching staff. I mean, Chris, that's let's face it, that's probably why he got brought back. Yeah. The fact that he once again they've brought back guys who they've had as depth options in the past. Last season he saw seven games and started three of them for the Bills after Vontae Davis essentially tucked his tail in between his legs and ran home in the middle of the Chargers game. Does that ever Total aside, does that ever stop being embarrassing? Does it ever stop being embarrassing? After all of the things that we've had to endure as Bills fans, all the just shameful moments, we had a player fucking quit in the middle of a game. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever heard of that. I've never heard of that, and I I think he'll be the only one to actually do that. (sighs) He's a punk-ass bitch. (laughs) Or is he a bitch-ass punk? Skig? Skag? Scallywop? I don't know, and I don't care. To hell with that guy. I hey, I have the shirt to prove it. Yeah. Unlike Vontae Davis, I did not quit. The wing challenge, it almost killed me, and I came out the other side. What's your excuse, Vontae? When you talk about Ryan Lewis, he's a guy that they trusted to go out there. He's big. He's physical. His best game was against Green Bay, where he looked every bit of an NFL caliber cornerback. I've been pounding the table for them to finally give him a chance, and when they did... He finished with eight tackles, almost had a pick six, and forced two fumbles. And, Chris, after that, I don't know what the fuck happened. I don't know if he, like, said something disparaging about the process and it got back to McDermott. But we literally didn't hear from him again after what I thought was an inspiring performance. He just got, he apparently was in the doghouse. I mean, think about it. Levi Wallace doesn't get his opportunity to play if Ryan Lewis continues to see the field. That's true. So he did something. I don't know what, but he got into the coaching staff's doghouse and you just didn't see from him. Didn't see anything from him anymore. It's going to be interesting to see if he can outplay Kevin Johnson or at least be healthier than because obviously that's where Kevin Johnson fits best as an outside cornerback. Again, veteran option, but he's got a laundry list of health problems. If he can at least prove that he's as talented but more durable than Kevin Johnson, they have to give a long look at a guy like Ryan Lewis making the 53-man roster. You have to. You just have to, Chris. And then, beyond that, the only thing I know about the players left, Denzel Rice and Lafayette Pitts, is that neither has many NFL stats, despite the fact that they've got, I think, seven years of combined experience. And they're both you know, 5'11", 6'0", tall, just look like your average run-of-the-mill boundary cornerbacks. 
that I don't I don't think can play at an NFL level. I just don't. Otherwise, over the course of seven years, they would have figured it out. Well, they could also stay here and bounce at rec room on Chippewa if they want to. <laughs> I don't know about that. When you're 5'11", 190, I don't think you're bouncing too many people. I'm 5'11", 215, and uh, I'm not bouncing too many people. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. When I look at this group as a whole, I firmly believe that Wallace is going to be given the inside track to winning that starting job on the opposite side of Trey White. I, I just think that's the way it's going to go. But with that said, McDermott has a long-standing history. He's got a hard-on for veteran presence. So it won't just be handed to him. He's going to have to earn it. Both EJ Gaines and Kevin Johnson are going to scrap it out for backup jobs, I believe, both on the inside and outside. But given their extensive injury histories, neither one of them are a lock to make the final cut. And as for the rest of the guys, I, I think Cam Lewis and Ryan Lewis are the only ones who are practice squad eligible, meaning that it's unlikely that we're going to see much of anyone else on this list by the time September rolls around, unless something Nathan Peterman-esque, like that level of terrible, were to happen to our cornerback group. Chris, I feel like it would take... It would take something along the lines of a Nathan Peterman pick six, maybe even like a deep impact type situation. Like there's a comet heading for Earth. It's going to hit halfway through the NFL season and all of our DBs besides Denzel Rice and Lafayette Pitts decide, you know what? I don't want to spend the rest of the last few weeks of my life playing football. I'd rather go be with my family. That's how I see those two making the roster. Otherwise, <laughs> it's not happening. So with that, you know, we, we've just talked about every position on the defensive side of the ball and how, the, how we think, or how, at least how I think, the depth chart shakes out. Sleepers and predictions. As far as the safety position goes, my sleeper is Mo Alexander. He's got previous starting experience. He's going to be an impact player on special teams, and he's got favorable age and upside to Raphael Bush. My prediction for the group as a whole, tell me, you, you, Chris, I'm going to bounce these off you. You tell me if they sound far-fetched or not. Prediction, we keep four safeties on the 53-man roster come September, not three. That would be Mo Alexander, Hyde Poyer, and... One of Saran Neal, Jaquan J uh, Johnson. I mean, Johnson's going to have practice squad eligibility. Then I would say Saran Neal, and you put Johnson on PS. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem too far-fetched. You're damn right, because I'm a genius. I don't know about that. <laughs> At the linebacker position, if I had to pick a sleeper, I'll go with the guy that I've seen the most out of with my own two eyes playing college football, and that's linebacker Terrell Dodson. I, I watched the guy play. He just he was very good for Texas A&M. I watched a lot of SEC football. He's good in coverage. He's an aggressive tackler. He's not the biggest linebacker in the world, but he's got prototype size. I, every draft outlet I could find had him labeled as a, you know, a late-round draft pick or a priority undrafted free agent. But it was widely assumed that he would be in an NFL training camp somewhere. He has some upside as a developmental player. Once again, maybe this is it, Chris. Maybe this is a thing where you see a guy put on the practice squad and they hope they can groom him as depth as time goes on. Given the fact that they already invested a draft pick with Vashon... Uh, Voshan Joseph or Davis? Joseph. Voshan jo Joseph. I don't even know how to pronounce it. What's happening here? God, whiskey. All I know is this. We drafted a linebacker in the late rounds of the draft, so the fact that we added one as a UDFA 
I feel like they like his upside. I just don't see him cracking the 53, but he's got a shot. Injuries happen, and again, if they opt not to take an extra safety and they stick with this track of keeping, you know, just three or four or five, and they don't sacrifice that sixth linebacker position, you could see this guy. I, I, I'm telling our listeners now, keep an eye on him when camp rolls around because you're going to be hearing his name. I think out of all the backups that make up our roster, he's the one who, if any of them have a chance to push for a roster spot, it's going to be him. I'm not sure that that would happen. No? Because he does have that domestic violence. He was acquitted! That still could come back to haunt him. Oh, you never Jesus. know. You never Don't know. Don't you hashtag me too, me. Yeah, hashtag me too. Stop it. For the defensive tackle position, as far as sleepers go, I have none. I have no sleepers. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Barring injury, the four players at the top of the depth chart last season are going to be... The, th- the four players at the top, with Kyle Williams leaving, they're going to be joined by Ed Oliver, and that's going to round out the team, the guys that make the team. This is as close to a stone-cold lock as you're going to get this kind this time of year. I just don't see how between draft pedigree and financial investment, any of these lower-level players can push anyone above them on the depth chart for a spot. I 100% agree with all that. It's going to be Phillips, Phillips, Oliver, and Star. we got to come up with a nickname for them, like some kind of a band name. You can't have Phillips, Phillips, and a guy named Star without some kind of... Wilson Phillips? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I hate you. <laughs> now I'm going to have this song stuck in my head. Oh, you're a bastard. Okay, you'll have a song stuck in your head. I'll just have uh, Chris Farley in my head playing uh, the one, the fat one from SNL in the early <laughs> 90s. Oh, Jesus Christ. The defensive end position. I don't know. I don't know that I would label anybody as a sleeper. I mean, I'm pretty sure there isn't going to be a whole lot of outside movement. If there was anybody, I'd say Daryl Johnson. And as far as predictions, I've got a few involving this year's defensive ends. The first is that at some point during the preseason, Daryl Johnson is going to swoop down from the upper deck like the like the prehistoric bird that he seems to be designed after, and is going to carry some poor third string quarterback off to feed his young. It's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, second, I think that there's going to be a real dogfight to make the roster in this position group. The last two years, the Bills have gone into September and October with just five defensive ends on the 53-man roster. Okay? Now, the, the five. So out of five spots, I mean, f- five out of the gate, and then usually at some point, because of injuries or other positions... That's the one that gets cannibalized and they cut it down to four. You remember we had Nate Orchard on the team for a a hot minute and then we cut him. And they kind of cycled through these. When they had the opportunity, they kept five. But as soon as a need came up somewhere else, that was the first position to go. So I'm looking at this as a four-horse race. Considering that Murphy and Lawson are going to have to platoon at their position, I can already see a situation where the team likes the experience of Harold and the long-term potential of Johnson enough that guys like Love and Yarbrough, regardless of what they do, they're stuck on the outside looking in. And that's how I see this shaking out. We'll see if Camp brings something different. And then there's the cornerback position. And my sleeper is a guy who already played a season in the Bills uniform, and that's EJ Gaines. 
mean, I think it's maybe it's hard to call a guy with that many seasons under his belt as a sleeper. But, but this, he had one of his best seasons with us and this when he why. was healthy. He has experience in the system. If you remember that year when we had to put in – essentially when EJ Gaines got hurt in 2017 and had to leave the roster, we had to put in Lorenzo Alexander to fill his spot. And teams victimized him in space. It's not a coincidence that his, EJ Gaines' departure from the roster coincided with that string of just blowout losses. Teams knew how to scheme for Lorenzo Alexander, and they had the personnel to do it. You're talking about the teams like the Saints, Chris, the Chargers. Um, they just they figured out how to work against Lorenzo Alexander, and just abused him to the point where we had to do something. And then when EJ Gaines came back, and I think I remember reading the metric that our defense surrendered. It was like almost 100 fewer yards of defense per game when EJ Gaines was in versus when they used Lorenzo Alexander in his place. That sounds about right. I vaguely remember you reading off a stat similar to that. He's got some experience and a track record of success playing in this scheme. He's got familiarity with the coaching staff. And he won't be relied on to be a starter if he does make the roster, which I think might honestly be the key to preserving him healthy for a longer period of time over the course of a year. When I look at my prediction for the way this is going to shake out, let's call a spade a spade here, Chris. Kevin Johnson is the real-life incarnation of Mr. Glass from the movie Unbreakable. Never seen it. Of course not! Because you don't know quality movies. You make me so fucking angry sometimes. But you you don't know Taxi Driver even though you look like him. You legit... I saw you with aviators. You wore them to my house two weeks ago. Ugh. And then you look at the rest of the roster, the Rices and the Pitts of, of, of the defensive back group. Those are essentially the guys that you invite to your 4th of July party every summer. And when they get there, you realize why you don't hang out with them the other 364 days a year. Lose! <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. I have a feeling Ryan Lewis makes a legitimate push to make the 53-man roster out of camp, especially if something happens to Kevin Johnson on the injury front, which, considering how much wind we've had lately, I'm shocked hasn't happened already. Well, he's probably not here right now. God bless him. Yeah, he's, he's in a bubble somewhere. They found a way to just wrap him in bubble paper. When you take a look at it, though, overall, this team, this team is deeper at critical positions like safety, linebacker, and cornerback, than we were in 2018. I don't think you can argue with that. You know, the fact that you brought in some faster linebacking talent, some guys to back up older players, like kind of in a Lorenzo Alexander-esque role. You've got, you've got a, a safety group that might be the deepest we've seen in years. And you've got cornerbacks that are now all of a sudden, be, you know, come week three when we have an injury, we have the ability to not be looking to practice squad guys like Ryan Lewis and Levi Wallace for help. You have legitimate NFL talent backing up young, talented players that to this point have looked the part of an NFL starter. Yeah, I really like our cornerback depth. I think that might be the key to our defense this year. That's it. We added, and we went out and added some legitimate top-tier talent at the defensive tackle position, which was one of dire need. On paper, regardless of who wins what job, the units that they trot out there on Sundays this year should have every opportunity to be as good, if not better, than those fielded over the last two seasons by the Bills. And if they can find a way 
just to find a way to get some consistency in key areas like short area tackling and run defense from one week to the next to the next, they could make that jump from a very good defense to elite defense by the time everything's said and done. I mean, guys, Chris, I'm excited about this. I feel pretty confident that this, just based on the talent we have on hand and the continuity of scheme and coaching staff, I don't, I, it would be very hard for this team to regress. I can't see us being outside of the top 10 in defense this year. No, and that's it. And, and we should be pushing, we should be pushing higher than that. Because if you want to go places, you're going to have to Like the playoffs? I want to go to the playoffs. You're going to have to contend with the New England Patriots and the Chiefs and the Saints and the, the Rams and the, 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 often, the brilliant offensive-minded coaches of the world. You're going to have to contend with them. So if you really want to go places this year, it's going to be on this defense to, to not just round to form, to not have guys find their place, not have these young guys come together, but to do so with consistency from one week to the next. No more of this, hey, one week we hold the Vikings to, no, to, to really no offensive production. And then we followed up with a game against the Titans where we just essentially blank their quarterback for, the, for, the most, of the, for most of the game. And then we go out and get our heads kicked in by somebody who's just too prepared for us. If we can eliminate that aspect from our game, I think we have the talent on hand to do it. We can really go places this year. Next week, folks, we're going to be talking about the more exciting half of the Bills roster, the offensive side of the ball. And with so many new faces and position battles that, that are going to be on tap here, we had to go out and get a ringer. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. I'm not only, uh, I'm not only a, uh, what do I want to call it, a savant when it comes to football knowledge. I'm also incredibly handsome. Um, You're an asshole. <laughs> I'm knowledgeable, I'm hilarious, but I can't do this on my own, folks. So with that, we've reached out to Joe Marino of the Lockdown Bills podcast and the Draft Network. He's going to come on next week and help us break down everything that the offensive side of the ball is going to give us come training camp. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, it's not next week. It's 22nd. The 22nd. 22nd will be the next podcast. And, and Chris, that's, that's a Monday, too. And will that mark our return to weekly podcasts? It will. Oh. Next show, 22nd. <laughs> We're back. Weekly episodes until the draft. <laughs> I can't wait. Seeing Drew once a week. Oh, don't act <laughs> like you don't love it, folks, as I sit here in two fist beers. Guys, guys, thank you so much for showing up week in and week out this summer. You, we've found an incredible surge in support this offseason. More downloads than we've ever had. More, more listener response. Keep it up. Keep it coming. I've never asked this, but review our podcast on iTunes because apparently that matters. Apparently that helps people find you, which yeah. I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. I mean, Chris, would you want more people subjected to me every week? No, I'm <laughs> going to be subjected to you a pretty, I mean, uh, 22nd, once a week, and then once preseason games start, more than once a week because we'll be watching games together. You're damn right. And folks, don't forget to get your so make sure you get your emails in to join the Rockpile Report Fantasy Football League. Make sure you tune in next week as Joe Marino joins us to break down all of the action in the offensive side of the football. It's guys, it's almost here. Football, real tangible football is so close, I can taste it. Ah, Chris. I'm getting all fired up now. Here's we're ending the show. I gotta get out of here. 
Thank you so much for stopping by, folks. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rockpile Report. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.